The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 23 of the Civil Magistrate, Paragraphs 3 and 4. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments, or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he has the authority, and it is his duty, to take order, that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered and observed. For the better effecting whereof, he hath power to call synods to be present at them and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Paragraph 4. It is the duty of people to pray for magistrates, to honour their persons, to pay them tribute and other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority, for conscience' sake. Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to him from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted. Much less hath the Pope any power or jurisdiction over them in their dominions, or over any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominions or lives, if he shall judge them to be heretics, or upon any other pretense whatsoever. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of This We Confess. Last time out, and indeed today, we are thinking about the civil magistrate. In chapter 23 of the Confession, it is clearly stated that God is supreme all over the world, but he has set up civil magistrates, or governments as we might call them, all over the people for his own glory and the public good. They have the power of the sword, and indeed Christians can serve in the government of any local region, even to the point of waging a just and necessary war. Today, however, we consider what the government is supposed to do under God and our response to the government. And the first paragraph here is incredibly controversial. Our American brothers and sisters decided to revise and redefine this paragraph when Presbyterianism came to the United States of America. It is a paragraph that is very much of its time. The Westminster Divines were discussing and debating within the so-called Houses of Parliament, the Palace of Westminster, 
and indeed they had been called to give their theological opinion to both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The country that existed back then is radically different from the country that we have today. And indeed all over Europe you had Protestant nations and Roman Catholic nations. You had a Pope who was all-powerful and you had monarchs on thrones all across Europe who went one way or the other depending upon their view of the Reformation. And so it is no wonder then that the Westminster Divines speak of the civil magistrate in the way that they do in paragraph 3. However, they begin with an entirely uncontroversial statement. They write that the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of God. Or in other words, there is to be absolutely no area of the word and the sacraments or the discipline of the local church that the government should have a role in. We mentioned last week that the government at times will command and we as Christians must absolutely refuse their command. I believe the Westminster Divines outline that for us here. When the government of the day tell us what may or may not be preached from the word of God, when the government of the day ban the sacraments or advise us to change them and their meaning, when the government of the day interfere with the courts of the church and the discipline exercised there, then the government of the day must be disobeyed. The civil magistrate has no authority and no rule within the administration of the word, the sacraments and the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So far so good and so far so uncontroversial. However, as the paragraph continues, the Westminster Divines do underline that it is their contention and belief that the government has certain duties when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ. They're outlined for us throughout paragraph 3, and to sum them up we can say that the Westminster Divines believe that the government should preserve peace in the local church, that the government should seek that the word of God is kept both pure and entire, that the government suppresses all error, and indeed any abuses and worship and discipline are prevented and reformed by the civil magistrate. It is up to the civil magistrate, say the divines, to ensure that the means of grace are administered. And indeed, the civil magistrate can call and be present at gatherings of the church, at synods, and indeed make sure that the judgments of such synods are true and according to the mind of God. Now, as I say all of this, I'm sure many of you will have issues aplenty with what I have just stated, and yet it is the teaching of the Westminster Divines. So what is to be done? I think here we see clearly why we call the Westminster Confession one of our subordinate standards. The Confession is not a perfect document, and the Confession is very much, as I have said, of its time. And so as this was written, the government of the day took seriously matters of religion. Britain in those days was certainly considered to be a Protestant country under a Protestant king. The English Reformation was sweeping through the land and James I was on the throne. It is important to note here that the country in which we live is radically different from the country back then. And so it is within that context that the Westminster Divines believe that the civil magistrate must have some influence over the local church. 
it's hard to imagine the government of the day concerning itself with any of these issues. But again, the country back then was a different world from the country that we have now. On this issue, I would be much more in line with our American brothers and sisters. I would want to draw lines clearly between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. I would want to state that the kingdom of God is the church of Jesus Christ, and no government or civil magistrate should have any authority or say in the business of the church, just as the Pope in Rome or a bishop in Westminster should have no say over the running of the civil magistrate. There are two kingdoms, and they can benefit one another, they can support one another, and they may even agree wholeheartedly with one another in various points in history. But I think we are better served to keep clearly in our minds the differences between the church and the state, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And I would humbly contend that it is the responsibility of godly elders in the local church to do everything here that is outlined as a responsibility for the civil magistrate. It should be godly elders who preserve the peace of the local fellowship, who ensure that the word of God is kept pure and entire, that everything in it from Genesis to Revelation is preached and preached correctly. It is up to the local elder to ensure that all error is suppressed. And so when there is error breaking out in the local church or community, these men called by God to be spiritual overseers should take a stand against such error. It is for the local elders to ensure that any abuses in worship and discipline are prevented or reformed. When we come to the local church to worship, not everything goes. And so it is up to the elder to ensure that the regulative principle is firmly put in place and observed. It is up to the local elder to ensure that the means of grace is administered correctly. And it is up to the church and presbyteries to call synods and attend to them and to ensure the truth under God of their judgments. As I read paragraph 3, I see nothing here that should be placed with the civil magistrate. I would argue that the first sentence of paragraph 3 is absolutely correct and should be extended to say simply that the civil magistrate may not assume to himself any authority over the kingdom of God, over the church of Jesus Christ. However, that is not to say that we as Christians can snub our noses at the civil magistrate. And as this chapter comes to a close, Paragraph 4 tells us clearly how we are to respond to the civil magistrate. The divines begin by saying that it is the duty of people to pray for the magistrates and to honour their persons. This is lifted directly from scripture where Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and verses 1 to 2 and he says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we are to pray for Boris Johnston, and we are certainly not to mock him or to make fun of him. Instead, we are to honour their persons, as the divines put it. It is Peter who writes in 1 Peter 2 and 17 that we are to honour everyone. We are to love the brotherhood. We are to fear God and we are to honour the emperor. Now that is not to say we bow down and worship the emperor. 
It is not to say that we trust the government above all else and we put pictures of Boris Johnston and Arlene Foster above our mantelpiece. But you can honour someone without worshipping them. You can honour someone with your words and you can certainly refuse to mock our civil magistrates and to slander their names. We are to pray for them and we are to honour them. Not only that, but as Christians, we are to pay them tribute and other dues. In modern language, we would simply say that we are to pay our taxes. We are not to be sneaky in how we operate with our money. We're not to hide some down the back of the radiator. We're to be honest when we are doing our tax returns. We are to take the words of Jesus literally when he urged us to render unto Caesar that which was Caesar's. And as Paul puts it in Romans 13 and 6-7, Because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. And so for the Christian, refusing to pay our taxes is not an option. As the divines continue, they tell us that we are to obey the lawful commands of the civil magistrate and to be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. It is here that I would want to pause for a second. The divines are clear that we are to obey the lawful commands of the civil magistrate. Again, as Christians, we are under no obligation to obey the commands of the magistrate when they would lead us into sin when they would cause us to disobey God. Again, if we are told by the civil magistrate that we cannot and should not preach the gospel, or if the civil magistrate continues lockdown endlessly and says that there will never ever be again another meeting of church, if the civil magistrate says that in churches we should absolutely change our stance on marriage or else, then we are to disobey such commands. But in all other things, we are to obey the lawful commands of the civil magistrate and subject ourselves to their authority. Paul would say in Romans 13 and 5, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We obey the speed limit. We take care not to wound or hurt our neighbour. But when it comes to the things commanded by God, we must obey him instead of man. At this point, some might say, but Scott, currently our government is incredibly pagan. Should we still then obey in such a circumstance? The divines saw that coming. They write that infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to him. Or in other words, if you are ruled by someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you are ruled by someone who is incredibly religious, but they do not follow the Christian religion, do you have to obey such a ruler? The answer from scripture and the answer here is absolutely yes. Such a ruler deserves our obedience to avoid the wrath of God and for the sake of conscience. Just because the Prime Minister is a pagan doesn't mean that we should snub our noses at him. Once more, he should not ever lead us into sin. We are under no obligation to obey his unlawful commands. 
But where he acts and decrees lawfully, even though he may be the greatest pagan in the country, he deserves our respect, he deserves to be prayed for, and he deserves our honour. A few years ago, Americans had this very thing before them when Mitt Romney stood as a candidate for the presidency. Many were concerned that he was a Mormon and he would have been the first Mormon president if he was successful in beating Barack Obama. And many felt that they could not vote for such a man. They could not vote for someone who followed a false religion. Now, I am neither an American nor can I vote in the American general election. But what I would say is in such a circumstance, the two kingdoms should be remembered. There is the kingdom of God, the church, and there is the kingdom of man, the state. And so it is possible for your prime minister or president to be a Mormon and still for you to obey such an individual. First Peter and 2 once more is clear when verse 13 states, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so the civil magistrate, whether Protestant, pagan or pantheist, deserves our prayers, our respect, and our submission. But equally, the civil magistrate should not be dominated by any ecclesiastical person. The laws of the land, the divines tell us, apply to ecclesiastical persons. Or in other words, just because you are a minister of the church or the Pope in Rome, it doesn't mean you can go 70 miles down the road when the speed limit is clearly 30. In Acts 25, Paul wishes to make his appeal to Caesar. The apostle could have easily said that he would stand only before the Lord. But knowing the rules of the land, knowing the state that he was in, Paul appealed to the emperor. Paul appealed unto Caesar. And so just because we are religious, just because we are Christian, just because we have a collar around our necks, doesn't mean that in this current state, we can live and do as we please. And indeed, the Pope has no power or jurisdiction over the civil magistrate or any of their people. Once more, back in the day when the divines were writing this, the Pope could have easily removed a kingdom from a king. The Pope could have demanded their people, their dominion, their money, if he judged them to be heretics or any other pretense whatsoever. The divines are clear. The Pope did not have, and still does not have, such authority. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And if there is any figure like the Pope who has tried to stand over them both and seeks to dominate that which he has nothing to concern himself with, then he should be rejected. As we close today, I am incredibly aware that these four paragraphs might seem so very alien to us. And indeed, it follows on from chapter 22, speaking of lawful oaths and vows, and even that seems strange. But truth matters in what we say and what we vow, and also how we live under the civil magistrate matters as well. As Christians, we are not lawless people, and as Christians, we are not told to seek out chaos. But for our sake, 
and for our good, God has placed the ruling authorities over us. And so therefore, because we love the Lord and we love the word, we are subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. As we live as British, American, Argentinian, Irish, Chinese citizens, we do our best to honour Caesar whilst always honouring the Lord. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. In what areas does the civil magistrate have no authority? Question 2. Outline why paragraph 3 has been problematic for so many Reformed Christians. Question 3. How is a Christian to respond to the civil magistrate according to paragraph 4? Question 4. If the Prime Minister or the President is a pagan, should we still obey such an individual? Question 5. When can a Christian refuse to obey the civil magistrate? And question 6. Define what we mean when we speak of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess.